0: Okay, people, uh, Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Jonah. It's quite a combination, really. Uh, I'm on page 28 in the uh, course notes. Um, so I'm going to talk about uh, those stories, uh, then... Um, I've picked out two or three of the, of the comments out of your postings that you might like to talk about with each other, and then I'll spend the last, the last bit of time um, where I haven't picked up the things out of the postings in the lecture now, uh, p- uh, looking and see if what, what other questions there are that it would be good for me to pick up in that last bit of the class tonight. So approaches to, the, to interpreting... To the interpreting... That doesn't make sense, does it? Approaches to interpreting the story about Abraham, uh, Sarah, and Hagar. And what I've done on these two pages uh, is given you various kinds of ways that people have interpreted these stories um, to show how people have looked for different kinds of information in them. Uh, And I've illustrated these different approaches from different commentators for clarity. Uh, The commentators themselves do mix up um, the approaches. Uh, And... uh, so what I, want to be looking, what I want us to be aware of is to what extent the different writers get their material from the text, to what extent they get, them from somewhere else, get it from somewhere else. What is it that helps them see things? What is it that helps them miss-see things? Uh, and the first two guys are guys who find in the text what are called paranetic or hortatory material. Well, those are complicated words. Why do you need those words? Well, because what that means is examples of how to behave or how not to behave. Well, why don't you say that then? Okay. Uh, Paranesis means um, exhortation. And hortatory means exhortation, really. Um, (laughs) So it's either telling you, this is how you, a story is telling you how you ought to live um, or how you ought not to live. Um, Martin Luther. Abram and Sarai model how to act in faith How spouses take counsel together when their faith is tried. How to resolve disturbances in the family. They receive from Hagar the world's typical hostility. Hagar is puffed up and lording it over Sarai. Sarai's dealings with her are justified, though overdone. Abram and Sarai realize their mistake, but Hagar doesn't. Though she is later an example in her response as God shows mercy to her. God fetches her back so that she can fulfill her vocation and domestic life. tell it's a guy writing this, can't you? (laughs) (laughs) Calvin, Sarai departs from the word of God concerning the marriage order uh, by um, encouraging Abraham also to marry Hagar. Departs from the word of God concerning the marriage order in order to see the word of God fulfilled, God's promise. Um, somebody referred to Hagar as uh, Abraham's mistress. Uh, she isn't that. What, what um, Abraham is doing is, uh, is taking Hagar as a second wife, uh, which, uh, by the way, it's, it's often difficult to tell. Uh, I can't remember what what's, uh, the NRSV translation, for instance, um, how it puts it here. The, there's, um, Hebrew doesn't have a word for wife. Or rather, it doesn't have a word. It does have a word for wife, and the Old Testament doesn't use it very often. Um, the, the word for a wife is somebody who is um, mastered, owned, um, and so it's really rather encouraging that the, that the Old Testament doesn't use doesn't use the word very often. Uh, so the word, the technical words for a husband and a wife, are are a master, which is ba- baal, as in the word Baal. The, the, the name of the god Baal means that he is the master. Um, Baal is then also the word for a husband. And uh, a woman who is married is a ba'ula, is somebody who is mastered, somebody who is lauded, somebody who is owned, somebody who is sovereigned over. And it's then interesting that the Old Testament doesn't use those words very often. Normally, when it wants to talk about a husband, normally when you come across the word husband and wife in the Old Testament, it'd actually be the ordinary word man and woman. And it's easier to say, sometimes if it's her man, his woman... Um, then uh, it's, uh, it's it's pretty explicit that it's talking about husband and a wife. Uh, sometimes it's difficult to be sure, uh, but it does look as if what's going on in Genesis 16 uh, is that God uh, is, is that is that Sarah is telling Abraham to marry Hagar uh, so that she can be his. Um, well, again, the tra- sometimes translations use with regard to people like Hagar the word concubine which is a misleading kind of word, because that can suggest a, a kind of illicit relationship. It's more something like a secondary wife, uh, which um, in that kind of culture probably means that her children wouldn't have the same inheritance rights um, as, the, as a primary wife would have. Um, so it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, kind of, a particular kind of polygamous relationship. Now, we may not approve of that, but uh, don't think, uh, I mean, and, and the story, I think, by implication, it doesn't reckon that Abraham and Sarah are doing the right thing. But it doesn't think they're doing the r- It's not for moral reasons of that kind. It's not because there's something illicit about the nature of the relationship between Abraham and Hagar. There's nothing illicit about it. It's, as it were, a proper relationship within the social context. Uh, what's wrong with it is that thing that Calvin is here talking about. About, her, um, about Sarah deciding she better do something in order to make sure that God's promises get fulfilled because they're obviously not going to get fulfilled so Sarah better do something about it. So, um, Sarah departs from the word of God concerning the marriage order in order to see the word of God fulfilled, God's promise. Abraham and Sarah thereby illustrate the ease with which we can use the wrong means to, forf- to bring about the fulfillment of what is indeed God's will and the ease with which we can be led astray by the people nearest to us. Abram rightly surrenders Hagar to Sarai. Sarai rightly disciplines her, and Hagar wrongly flees rather than acknowledging her fault. Now, what's striking? Now, well, one or two things that are striking about those. The first is that Luther and Calvin are seeing quite different and sometimes contradictory um, lessons, as it were, exhortations out of the stories, and. Uh, the reason why they're able to do that is the stories don't do that at all. So anybody can read anything into them. Uh, and, and so the, the, co- the contrast between what they find, what the two interpreters find there puts you on the track of the fact that they're asking the wrong question. Uh, and as maybe I've uh, suggested before, then the point about this kind of story in the Old Testament turns out not to be actually to provide us with examples. It's talking about the way in which God's promises um, get fulfilled or get frustrated or the messes that people get into but it's kind of um, it's saying well life's like that deal with it people are like we, we 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 do things like that we get into messes like that God gets them out of them in the end God's in this kind of interaction but it's, it's not taking um, it's not looking for examples good or bad it's simply saying well that's how things work out don't they second sort of question theological material that is Uh, finding in these stories illustrations of the nature and purpose of God. Basil Atkinson in his commentary, Whereas Abram and Sarai represent the new covenant with its heavenly Jerusalem, Hagar and her child picture the old covenant made at Sinai, whose members are in bondage. Remember that Hagar is an Egyptian, and she's a slave. And they represent the earthly Jerusalem. The union of Abram and Hagar suggests the putting of law alongside gospel, Or the expectation that an unredeemed humanity can fulfill the law, which are both futile. (coughs) Hagar's despising of Sarai recalls the Jews' despising of Gentiles. Her fleeing recalls the Jews' efforts to evade the Old Covenant obligations. Having a son suggests the way the Old Covenant engendered a people, but engendered a people to bondage. And he compares Galatians 4, uh, and that puts you on the track of where all that stuff comes from. Um, many of whose observations are really rather strange because Hagar despising Sarai equals the Jews despising of Gentiles. But Hagar is the Gentile and Sarai is the Jew, as it were, in the story. Uh, One or two of you raised the question of um, what Galatians did uh, with this Hagar story um, and kudos to you for doing that. The thing to note uh, is how... Uh, it's a typical example of how the New Testament uses the Old Testament. That is, Paul has got a point that he wants to make uh, and he realises that there's an Old Testament story that can help him make his point. Paul isn't concerned with discovering from the Sarah, Hagar, Abraham story uh, something illuminating for our lives which he hasn't thought of yet. Paul knows the point he wants to make and is utilising the Old Testament story in order to illustrate it which I'm tempted to say, and you can tell I'm about to give in to the temptation, is roughly what the average preacher does. And actually, it's what Luther and Calvin were doing as well. And it's, um, well, the New Testament guys do it, so it can't be too bad, can it? It's okay. Uh, you, it, it probably won't lead you far astray, because you will be working within the framework of, uh, of the Gospel and Scriptural teaching as a whole. Um, the disadvantage is, you probably will lose the point of the particular story. It's not, what you say that w- it's not that what you say will be wrong, what you think will be wrong, how you apply it to yourself will be wrong. It's that you won't get the particular thing, um, at least you may, you may miss the particular thing that the story uh, might have to say. Uh, Klaus Westermann, in his commentary, God has closed Sarai's womb and has announced to Hagar the birth of a son. He grants new life, he denies new life. The declaration about God that dominates the narrative is laid down in the name of the Son, a name of praise. God hears. That's what the name Ishmael uh, means, God hears. The description of God, Hagar's description of God, you are the God who sees me, expressed in the name Elroi, Hagar's description of God is actually saying the same thing. You can see how God listens and God sees. They both are... Um, statements about uh, about God that emerge uh, from the story and one of them comes to be a description of Ishmael, the child, and the other comes to be a description of God. In the messenger's greeting, the angel's greeting, Hagar has met God in action, reaching the earth and beholding the human in her distress. Somebody in their posting um, said something about the angel, and I think... Um, I can't see which one it is now. Um, Noticed how um, here you have, um, yes, the term angel most likely meant the presence of deity in angelic form. Or rather, the presence of deity uh, in human form. Because uh, when these angels appear uh, in, in Genesis, they don't look like angels, uh, they look like human beings. That's what angels normally look like. Angels don't wear flowing white robes and have wings and things. Um, they they look like human beings. That's why you can that's how you can entertain angels unawares, awares, um, as Hebrews in the New Testament puts it. Um, and so, the appearing uh, of these figures in the Genesis stories and elsewhere in the Old Testament, but mostly in Genesis, is a way um, of God really appearing. Uh, and, but appearing in a human form, which thereby um, doesn't kind of electrocute you, uh, as uh, would be the danger if God, in the literal kind of sense, appeared. So, Hagar has met God in action, reaching the earth, beholding the human in her distress. Uh, and Vesterman compares Luke chapter 1, uh, Mary's saying, he has regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden, um, Vesterman makes a comparison then between God appearing to Hagar and God appearing to Mary. And some of those things about the, uh, the positive side to God appearing to Hagar take something of the edge um, off the toughness of what God's doing with Hagar. Uh, what somebody, well I think more than one person, wondered how this Hagar story could be redemptive. Um, and I think that's kind of one of the answers, that, um, that the way that God, God actually relates to, to Hagar uh, has a redemptive side to it. see more of that in a minute. And then Vestima, what I think is Vestima's most um, interesting theological point, the person of the messenger of Yahweh, this angelic figure, who is both God and man, it's God because it represents God, but it's a human-like figure, suggests a biblical starting point for thinking about the incarnation, rather than a Greek one. The Greek starting point for the incarnation starts using these words about substance and hypostasis and lots of weird words. Did you, have, you didn't have to do that kind of systematic theology, did you? No, you were lucky, weren't you? Um, it's uh, because the, the thinking about the doctrine of the Trinity and the Incarnation that came into the creeds and the standard statements of faith and so on came out of Greek thinking. Uh, here's Vesterman saying, why didn't you start instead from this capacity of God's to appear as a human being? What you've got in the, in the Incarnation is, is a, a kind of um, hyped up, uh, a, a bigger, more far-reaching example of that. Let that provide you with a model for thinking about the Incarnation. So there are two guys looking for theological material in the stories. On the next page, page 29, what I've called anthropological material, I don't mean in the sense of um, uh, anthropological, in the sense of doing um, uh, study of uh, different human communities and so on, but rather, as I put in the, after the dash, um, anthropology in the sense of illustrations of what it can mean to be human. Um, and there's been a whole raft of uh, feminist uh, studies of the Sarah and Hagar stories um, that look to see what we learn about being human and in a particular, in particular what, uh, what we learn about being a woman uh, in those contexts and possibly in ours too. First, Phyllis Tribble, who was the original feminist interpreter uh, of the Old Testament, who, who wrote a book called God and the Rhetoric of Sexuality, uh, but then wrote this other book called Texts of Terror, in which she looked at um, some of the troubling stories about women in the Old Testament. And she says in the preface that only because she'd written the first book, God and the Rhetoric of Sexuality, and discovered the positive things that you could um, see about women in places like Genesis 1-3 to and the Song of Songs and Ruth and so on, had she got the kind of um, emotional capacity to go uh, and read some of these terrifying stories. Hagar is a fleeting yet haunting figure in scripture. Her story depicts oppression in three familiar forms, race, class and sex. Hagar is one of the first people in scripture to be used, abused and rejected. All sorts of women who go through those experiences uh, themselves find their story in hers. She's also the first person in scripture whom a divine messenger visits. First person in one of these angel type figures um, comes to see. She's the first woman to hear an annunciation. That is the first uh, person to whom God comes and says she's going to have a baby. The only woman to receive a divine promise of descendants. And the first person who dares to name God, when she says, El Rowei, the God who sees me. Hagar is a theologian. On the other hand, she experiences exodus without liberation, revelation without salvation, wilderness without covenant, wanderings without land, promise without fulfillment, unmerited exile without return there are some things you could say, as it were, in response to some of that. One of the points, I think, about God telling her to go back to Abram and Sarai that's worth uh, being aware of is would you rather be suffering uh, in the context of the people to whom the covenant belongs, where God is at work, or would you rather be on your own, not um, kind of oppressed by that, but outside of the story? Another way to put it would be to say would you rather be Ruth or would you rather be Opah? Um And uh, as it were, if you're looking for the redemptive side of the way that God treats Hagar, then uh, urging her to stay with Abraham and Sarai for all the costs, in a strange kind of way, um, is, uh, to invite, is, well, is to invite her into the sphere of blessing, rather than just to go back to Egypt. Who wants to go back to Egypt when, you're, uh, when, as it were, you could be with uh, Abraham and Sarai? Tribble is uh, an Anglo uh, American uh, feminist. Elsa Tamez is a Mexican who is the principal, uh, the president of a seminary in Costa Rica. Hagar and her son belong to the marginalized. They complicate the history of salvation, upsetting God's magnificent plans for Abram and Sarai. But now they cannot be erased from it. She is surprised to find God coming near her, a slave. Can it be that I have come to see the one who sees me? The Jerusalem Bible translation. Is God really interested in a slave, an Egyptian, a woman? But she is the one who gives God a name. But el adds, Women will never take as a norm any text that seems to sanction their submission. Uh, another feminist writer, on the other hand, any theory of revelation in scripture that distinguishes one biblical text as revelatory from another that is not, instead of dealing with the whole of scripture as revelation, is creating as many problems as it seems to be solving. And then Renita Weems, who is African American, for black women, the story of Hagar is a haunting one. It is a story of exploitation and persecution, suffered by a slave woman at the hands of her mistress. It is a story we have read in our mother's eyes, those afternoons when they came home after a hard day's work as a domestic, and if not in our mother's eyes, it is our grandmother's and our great-grandmother's. The similarity of our stories as black and white women in the USA to the stories of Hagar and Sarah Warren's taking the enormous risk of opening up the deep, festering wounds between us and beginning to explore the possibilities for divine healing. Um, one further uh, feminist, anthropological bit of interpretation, not of these H- Hagar and Sarah stories, um, but of the stories of um, Abraham and Isaac uh, passing off their wife uh, as their sister which they do three times. You'd have thought that they would learn, really, perhaps. Um, and perhaps even more puzzling than, uh, than, than the idea of it happening three times is the Bible tells the story three times. I mean, couldn't it have told you once and then told you for two other useful stories? What's going on here? Uh, Cheryl Exum suggests that the stories of a man passing off his wife as his sister Illustrate issues about, about men's attitudes to their wives' sexuality. Um, it's a kind of compliment that some other guy fancies, uh, fancies your wife. It might be rather intriguing the idea of your wife being taken into this other guy's bed. There are issues uh, about, about being men and women uh, that, are being, that are reflected in these stories. Uh, and then, fourthly, political mythological material. Uh, Dr. Evelyn Raisacker from SIS um, preached on the Hagar story in chapel a year or two ago. um, And talked about Hagar as a Palestinian woman, an ancestor of the Arab peoples. She's outside the chosen line. She's ill-treated by the members of the chosen line. But God listens to her and reaches out to her and she relates to God. Uh, And that's got political and missiological implications for you. A number of people in their postings asked the question which I talked about a bit last week in, in, in referring to Ishmael um, uh, about the uh, position, or in connection with the covenant um, may, uh, saw uh, the, the potential uh, in thinking about contemporary relationships between um, European peoples and Arab peoples, uh, between, between Anglos and Arab peoples uh, between Christianity and Islam and so on in these stories um, that there is a sense in which the Arab peoples as a whole and Islam as a religion is something that issues from what's going on uh, in Genesis 16. That then about um, uh, the particular Genesis 16 stories, um, over the page on page 30, the page that says um, the place of Hagar and Ishmael And uh, what I'm showing here is how uh, well, I'll tell you at the end. I'll do it. Then I'll say this is what I was showing here. There's a book by a Jewish scholar called Jonathan Maganay, uh which is called either Bible Lives or Bible Lives. It's a kind of play on words you see, so you can read it either way. And um, one of the uh, chapters is about the uh, Abraham story. And he shows how the chapters from Genesis 12 to 22 work as a chiasm. Do you know about chiasms? Hmm, well, no, some people don't. Some people were asleep that class. Some people went to a different class. Yes, that's okay. Um, a, a chiasm is some, a, a chi is, the, is, that, is the Greek letter that uh, looks like an X. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a cross-shaped in that, in that kind of cross. Um, and you can see how, in the way that I've laid out the passage underneath there, that's like, as it were, half, half of an X. That's why it's a kaiser. Or it's, it's a stepped structure. Um, it, it goes up and down like a pair of steps. Um, now, uh, the way that works is that in chapter 12, there is a call, a summons to Abraham, and a promise of blessing. Um, and in chapter twenty-two, when Abraham is summoned to is called to offer Isaac to God, there's another call and there's confirmation of the blessing. In the second part of chapter twelve is the the first of those stories about Abraham in a foreign land where he passes off his wife as a sister. Chapter twenty is the other story about Abraham in a foreign land with his, when he passes off his wife as a sister. Inside that, in chapters thirteen and fourteen, uh, is Lot. Um, in danger and needing to be rescued by Abraham and Lot going to Sodom. And uh, chapters 18 and 19 is Lot in danger in Sodom itself um, and needing rescuing from Sodom. Inside that, chapter 15 and chapter 17 are both stories about the making of the covenant. And then inside that in the middle is the story about Hagar and Ishmael. And there's another story about Hagar and Ishmael in chapter 21. You can see how that goes up the steps and down the steps. Um, how the, the, those stories pair with each other. Now, that's Maganai's analysis of this chiasm. He then comments that in Genesis 12 to 22, the centre of the stage belongs to Isaac. My comment is, no, it doesn't. Isaac shares the stage in this story with Ishmael. The centre of the stage is actually Hagar and Ishmael in chapter 16. Centre stage was supposed to be uh, Isaac's destiny, but before his birth, his father gave it away at the suggestion of his wife. Uh, somebody asked, "Well, why did Abraham give in to?" You asked, "Why did Abraham go, give in to such a stupid suggestion?" Um, and well, one of my answers is, Abraham is a wimp. <laughs> uh, it's not the only indication. Well, not every day. Some days he's Monday, Wednesday, Friday-ish about, re- about really. Some days Abraham is really courageous. Some days Abraham is a total wimp. Oh, tell him you're my sister. I'm in dead danger. <laughs> oh, no, tell him you're my sister as well. I'm dead danger again. Oh, why don't you go and... Oh, uh, so Sarah says, go on, marry Hagar. Mabon says, oh, okay then. <laughs> and if you, are, uh, if you are the wife of Sarah, Sarah is no wimp. Sarah is um, you know, a serious piece of work. Sarah is not to be, de- not to be joked with. When Sarah suggests to, your hus- to her husband what to do, if you're a husband, you do it. Like any marriage, really. Now, uh, in his commentary on Genesis, Gordon Wenham uh, notes another smaller chiasm near the close of chapter 17 of Genesis. And he calls Genesis 17 the second covenant making where uh, God um, institutes circumcision. He calls that the watershed of the Abraham story. So this little chiasm comes at a high point in God's fifth and final speech um, in what Wenham says is the watershed of the Abraham story. And again, Ishmael is at the center of this little chiasm. See how this one works? Sarah will bear a son for you, Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him. But I will bless and multiply Ishmael. I will establish my covenant with Isaac. Sarah will will bear him for you. See how that one goes up the steps and down the steps as well. Incidentally, again in their posting, somebody asked whether Hagar and Ishmael ought to have been in the covenant, um, in our thinking about covenant. Um, The reason why... Uh, they aren't is that there isn't actually talk about a covenant as a particular covenant with Ishmael there is talk about a particular blessing Um, but as far as covenant is is concerned they are part of the Abraham covenant well it's maybe a bit ambiguous as whether they are I mean but but, um, because of the stress as we noted when somebody asked a question last week uh, I think I see uh, Ishmael as beneficiary of the Abraham covenant even though it is especially Isaac's covenant but I see it that way by virtue of the fact that Ishmael does get circumcised. Um, so it's a bit hard if you get circumcised and you don't get the covenant. I mean, when you're not a, <laughs> at least when you're not a baby. I mean, that's kind of losing all sides, really, isn't it? <laughs> so, uh, just below that little diagram of verses 19 to 21, not only is the large-scale chiasm disturbed by Ishmael at its centre, a small-scale chiasm in the chapter that allegedly forms a climax to the Abram story is also disturbed by Ishmael at a high point now uh, another thing about that um, diagram at the top um, the steps up and down work very neatly except for chapter 21 which is stuck at the side there it's almost as if this chiasm isn't allowed to finish before we've got two stories about Hagar and Ishmael the same as we've got two about two of all the other kinds of stories when you do come to that chapter 21, which kind of sticks out in terms of the Kaiser, this is a, a further story that's dominated by Ishmael. It's also the chapter that relates Isaac's birth. But it tells the story of Isaac's birth very briefly. More briefly than the story about, Isaac in chapter, uh, that, uh, about Ishmael in chapter 21 that, goes, that, uh, that follows. So Walter Brueggemann in his commentary on Genesis observes that the story of the birth of Isaac is peculiarly understated you'd have thought there'd be a great fuss made about the story of the birth of Isaac. But you kind of slip over it into the second story about Ishmael. Wenham also notes that there's a close parallel between chapters 21, the story about Ishmael um, being sent off, and Genesis 22, the story of of Abraham's offering of Isaac. And what that means is that the story of Abraham's abandoning of Ishmael anticipates the story of Abraham's offering of Isaac. The effect is to put more emphasis on the horror and the wonder of the way that God treats Ishmael and to take the edge off the horror and the wonder of the way that God treats Isaac. What's going on here? The narrative reflects and advertises the fact that the birth of Isaac could not, in the event, be the uncomplicated joy that it might have been. At the centre point and climax of the narrative is an episode in which the whole thing threatens to abort so Elsa Tamez's description of Hagar as the woman who complicated the history of salvation. That Hagar complicates the history of salvation is reflected in the way she complicates the rhetoric of Genesis 12-22. to 22. By the rhetoric, I mean the way the story is told in order to bring home its significance to readers. The chapters, Genesis 12-22, to 22, would be much neater without Hagar and her son, But once Sarai has allowed the two of them into the story, they will not be elbowed out. And the chiasm can't come to its end without another story about them. There there have to be two stories about Hagar and Ishmael, as there are two stories about Abraham and the blessing, and two stories about Abraham passing off his wife as his sister, two stories about Lot and Sodom, two stories about the covenant. Now that leads into a paradox. Maganei, who is the Jewish scholar, the the rabbi describes the call of Abraham as a most particularistic act designed to achieve a most universalistic hope, blessing for all humanity. Uh, that uh, links to questions that wanted to be raised in their postings, so let me say a word or two about that. Here's this, here is, God is, con- G- Maganese, the Jewish scholar, assumes God is concerned for the whole world. And his basis in these stories for reckoning God is concern for the whole world, is there in the Abraham story or it's there in in the stories of all these um, ancestors of Israel because God keeps noting how God's blessing is not just designed for Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Joseph. It's designed for all the other peoples around Abraham and around Isaac and around Jacob and around Joseph. Um, That that, that, that the, the, uh, the choice of Abraham is not designed to be one that limits where God's blessing is operative but rather designed to open up the possibility of blessing all peoples. Uh, and um, somebody asked a question about that. I can't quite remember how they, uh, uh, precisely how they expressed it. But I think they implied... Uh, well, it's weird, isn't it? Why, what's God doing? Why is God just... Settle? Yeah, here we are. Here's one, one, one of the questions. I'm just wondering why God chooses a certain race as his chosen people and at the same time why he shows his plan of salvation towards all races, and God's unlimited mercy and love toward them. What does God pursue? Is God a discriminator or not? Um, and the answer is both. That is, God, God does settle on Abraham and Abraham's line, but God does that in order to reach the whole world. Well, why does God do that? Why doesn't God wheel himself to everybody all at once? Yes, why doesn't God do that? That's a very good question. I have no idea what the answer is. Uh, the Bible doesn't, go, doesn't give us a clue as to the answer. Um, though, though I think it fits with everything else about the way in which um, the, the, the Bible describes God's work. God's always working through people. Um, God, God, God does the same. I mean, God sends Christ. Then, then God chooses Paul and commissions Paul to go and tell the whole world about the gospel. Why didn't God send Christ all the way around the world? Why did God only send Christ to one place? Uh, Well, just God didn't do that, Um, uh, but it looks as if, as I say, God chooses to work through people, Uh, and that's uh, rather than working through through everybody at once, Uh, and the way in which God is at work through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is the beginning um, of that um, way of working. That's assumed throughout the Old Testament. The reason why God chose Israel is not for Israel just to sit there enjoying the blessing. But it's for Israel to be an embodiment of what God does with the people. So that the whole world says, I want that. So Maganay describes the call of Abraham as a most particularistic act. It's particular, it's just using Abraham. Designed to achieve a most universalistic hope, blessing for all humanity. What he doesn't notice though is that the very sharing of, t- of center stage by Ishmael and Isaac expresses the same tension between particularism, going for Abraham in particular, and universality, being concerned about the whole world, the same tension as the words are promised to. Magnet's analysis doesn't recognize that. Now you might have thought that the Christian interpreters, but perhaps you might say, be suspicious and say, well he is Jewish, for all that talk about universalism, perhaps he really likes it that God he focuses on the Jewish people. But then what's striking is that neither of the Christian interpreters, Brueggemann and and Wenham, noticed that either. They might have been expected to see anything that points to an openness to people outside the ancestors of Israel, such as themselves. The fact that they don't do that maybe reflects the influence of the Christian-Jewish appropriation of the narrative by New Testament writers like Paul, who were in a position to identify with Isaac and didn't need to identify with Ishmael. That's what Paul does in, in that passage in Galatians. You see, Paul invites his readers to identify with Isaac. It's all right for for Paul to identify with Isaac, um, but it'd be more natural for the most of the Galatians, and certainly for you and me, to identify with Ishmael. For more than one reason, readers, for more than one reason, Gentile readers may also want to identify with Ishmael, but they tend not to do so. Jewish and Christian exegetes have both missed a key feature of the text which would please them if they saw it but the exegetical traditions of their respective confessions have made them unable to recognise it. I suggest. Um, so that uh, provides a hint to us of uh, well it illustrates for us how both the way in which scripture has been interpreted uh, helps us to interpret it but it also easily narrows down our focus. So we can never afford to stop expecting that we're going to find some, that there's some new things there to discover. There's some richness we've not yet appreciated. Um, somebody said gloomily in their posting. There were many gloomy postings. <laughs> I find it challenging on how to understand narrative parts of the Bible through understanding its role placement within the entire biblical text. Is it only through reading through years of reading the Bible, like Bobby Clinton, before we can understand it especially since some of the texts are so dense contain contains such a lot of past historical information well um, the good news is you'll carry on discovering things about the Bible all through your life the even better news is I'll probably only be doing that for another 10 years if I'm lucky you're going to be doing it for another 40 years 50 years aren't you lucky because, indeed, the, the process of, of understanding... You, you, you never reach a point when you say, OK, I understand it now. Even more than is the case that a decent, literary critical kind of guy, uh, when they've read Hamlet end times, um, or when they've been and watched Hamlet end times, they don't then say, oh, well, I've got, I'm not going to bother with that again. You keep discovering new things. Um, so, uh, the, the person who... Sees Hamlet the first time will get some things. The person who reads a poem the first time will get some things. The person who reads a story in scripture will get some things. But because you don't get everything then, um, don't assume that therefore the beginning was uh was useless. One of my friends um uh has been seeing the same therapist for uh I guess half a dozen years, probably. Um and um I've only ever thought about the relationship from, from her angle, but I'm now thinking about it from his angle. Um, half a dozen years, he's been getting to know that person. Uh, and every time, every session, uh, I guess, he's discovering new things about that person. Uh, likewise in a friendship or a marriage. Um, you're, still, you're still discovering things. This woman that I've been married to all the years, I've you know, just discovered something else about her. This man that I've been married to all these years. You, you keep discovering things. Uh, and that's the nature of a relationship. That doesn't make you say at the beginning, oh dear, I don't understand this person at all. Well, it may make you say that. Well, no. You probably think you do understand them. Um, same is the case with us in the Bible. We, so, don't think you totally understand it, but don't be depressed about what you don't understand. There's always new things to discover. And ways in which, again, looking at a text in this case... Through somebody else's eyes helps you to see things you haven't seen before. Um, I think I will stop there. Yeah, for a minute, have you talked with each other? And I suggest what you do is uh, let me suggest three of the questions out of the postings that you might talk with each other about. But if you want to talk about your own questions, that's fine. But as I say, if you kind of haven't got. Uh, ideas about where to start from your own questions, then talk about these. With regard um, uh, to this uh, Abraham, Hay- uh, Sarah, Hagar stories, why is Jonah such a simple, I'm um, sorry, no, no, it's Jonah, beg your pardon. Uh, how can I explain the story of Hagar in a way that, that, that is redemptive? redemption seems to be an important narrative that I like to see in all the ways God works and in this case I feel no resolution maybe I'm asking the wrong question um, and then um, about the Jonas uh, story what well, the beginning of that one was why is Jonas such a simpering moron more importantly how and when are, am I like that because I'm sure I am Is it important to know if stories in the Bible are historical accounts? Does it make a difference whether Jonah really was swallowed by a fish or if it's a fictional account? And um, I wonder how to interpret the statement, God changed his mind. Is this a figure of speech or should it be taken literally? Uh, Yeah, talk about those with each other for five minutes. Or if you want to talk about other aspects of the stories, then do. Okay, go. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-huh. Water was redempted when really thirsty. I why did you find redemption?
1: That's the same thing. I mean, having
0: slaves, those not pretty common. as far as the narrative says, she ran away from some outside treated her after she gave her Dishman. So it's more like, with a play of penis and child child, you have a child, I hate mean, you, so I'll treat you that way. So i wonder if redemption did for it to be meaningful in that context. Is yes, going back to this place and knowing that God blesses you, bless you, even where you are. That is, you don't have to be a free person to be blessed, to be promised that your child will have People a And And I was like, that's really, um, like, then uh, uh, it seems like uh, why should we fight against acting, such things? Yeah, why don't we just That's uh, uh, yeah. my um, yeah. I wonder if that's where we have yeah. yeah. in the consciousness <laughs> But it's the understanding that yes, even with the simple still doing work. And it this that, the delivery necessarily mean that it needs to be It be so dramatic that it needs of the simple system. Not rather the simple system, but to say that uh, can work even within the simple system. Yeah. yeah. Right. I don't know where I'm going with this. So I guess It's trying to find a tension between yes, God can be in a simple situation, saying we're not condoning a simple situation. So what do you want to do in the whole situation? Yes. So it's a, it's a belief, I do There is, yeah, there is redemption. But there, in some sense, with the vision of the eschatology, there is a word towards us from the, the whole situation that's i a the store part of it has like yeah. Yeah. screws up God right? yeah. yeah. so does yeah. 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 the yeah. yeah. like, best. Okay. <laughs> oh, <don't say> that. <laughs> okay. Okay, okay, okay. You've had it. Uh, I'll say something about the uh, about general history um, and. Uh, well, let me just make a see, uh, make one to comment it, blah, about that business about Hagar being, this Hagar story being redemptive. Um, here's another bit of resurrection story. When Jesus says to Peter, When you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this he said to him, "Follow me. oh thanks <laughs> I mean there's nothing redemptive about that peter you 're going to be crucified. Follow me um, and yet somehow to be uh, to be embraced within the arms of god 's purpose uh, for Hagar or for peter um, that's the redemptive aspect too i'm not sure that's the redemptive aspect to it isn't it? Um, and the fact that you are embraced within that within that makes it possible to to face the tough things that happen uh, in a way that you might not otherwise be able to do. Uh, was Jane simpering whatever it was um, Just um, a couple of other things from the postings which were neat. Does, did Jonah use sleep as another way of hiding from God? That's a good observation. Did Jonah have anger issues? I can see you'd like to get Jonah into the therapy. That would be really great, <laughs> wouldn't it? Have Jonah, Jonah in, the, in the counseling room. In between those two comments. How did the sailors cast lots during the storm? <laughs> that was a clever question. That's arguably more difficult than getting swallowed by a whale, probably. <laughs> um uh, let me, let's go to page 32 uh, where it says Jonah at the top uh, and I'll talk a bit about the, some other aspects of, uh, some, some things that come out there in, um, a, and in the postings under this heading. So page 32 where it says Jonah. What is the aim of the book? And here are about eight options, nine options. Is the, the aim of the book of Jonah to warn you about how prophets can go wrong? Is it to bring out the problem of running away from responsibility and challenges and pain and loneliness? Is it to encourage Israel to a more open attitude to other nations? Is it to encourage us to care about the animal world? What about all those cows, says God at the end? Is it it to encourage Israel to, to repentance? To encourage Israel to repentance? If Nineveh can do it, you can. Is it to provide a figure who is a type of Christ? As Jonah was three days in the valley of the whale, so the Son of Man. Is it to assure us that God can have a change of mind? Um, Let me say a couple of things about that, as people raised it in their their postings. Uh, And somebody made a link with open theism. It seems to me that the way that the Bible talks about God having a change of mind, and in general the way it talks about God, means that neither classical theism nor open theism are scriptural. Are you nodding? That's good. I got a nod from somebody. In a minute, I'll get a hallelujah or an amen. I've been in your class for too long. <laughs> oh, so all these things you think I'm saying, you've heard me say before, how boring. <laughs> um, because both open theism and classical theism are philosophical constructs that come from outside of Scripture. Uh, and both of them can find some support in Scripture, but both of them... F- both of them, there are other things in scripture that they can't cope with. Um, now, uh, the, the scriptures make it clear, it seems to me, that God can know about the future. Open theism says that's impossible because the future doesn't exist yet. Well, tough, I say, because um, the Bible seems to describe God that way. <laughs> On the other hand, um, classical theism says, oh no, God couldn't have a change of mind. Uh, but the Bible keeps saying that God has a change of mind. So there must be something wrong, I think, with the set of assumptions. Why, why it causes disquiet to talk about God having a change of mind. It's not a sign of weakness to have a change of mind. Uh, it's, uh, it doesn't mean that God is inconsistent. Um, and so try to, let's try to take the, all of the witness to scripture, of Scripture to who God is and not narrow it down to what one philosophy or another philosophy... Um, says it's possible is Jonah there to show us how to recognize God's rescue um, for instance when a large, you see, people think that being swallowed by a whale is a problem actually being fought, swallowed by a whale is a solution because when, when Jonah is in the whale and he's praying, God inside the whale does not, Jonah inside the whale does not say, oh Lord please rescue me from this whale I know it doesn't say whale, it's a big fish but forgive me um, what Jonah says inside the big fish is oh thank you for rescuing me and putting me inside this fish because this is the way in which G- Job avoids drowning and just end up back on dry land um, but you might well not realize when you're swallowed by a big fish that that's God, God's way of rescuing you um, is the aim of the book to make us think note the ending end- the, b- the book ends with a question mark that's no way to end a book. <laughs> Just like Mark's gospel. I nearly, I, should have, I nearly did and I should perhaps have done. Read Mark's account of the resurrection story. Which ends up with. So, so, God, so, so Jesus tells the women to go and tell the disciples about, that he's alive. Um, and, and they don't tell anybody because they're afraid. That's no way to end a gospel. <laughs> so lots of people added extra endings in order to make it end properly. But God, God likes to make you think. God may even approve of seminaries. And that may seem to be unlikely. Well, God, I mean, sure, obviously God approves of the school of psychology. But God may even approve of the school of theology. If it makes you ask questions. Now, it would be, it would be foolish to say that only one of those um, uh, possibilities is the aim of the book of Jonah. And if you've got to decide on, if you, if you, if you reckon you've got to decide on the aim of a book, then you miss out hugely. Because all those things um, are either are there in the book or are possible implications of the book. Now, some people think Jonah is a historical story. Some people think it's a parable. How are we to decide which it is, and does it matter? Well, here's one thing. Somebody said in their postings that when Jesus um, is telling parables, it's it's a cheat to say it's like Jesus telling parables, because when Jesus tells parables, he makes it very obvious that he's telling parables. Actually, it doesn't. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he says, I'm about to tell you a parable. Uh, but um, when Jesus says there was a man who had two sons the younger man said to his father father give me the share of the property he doesn't start off the parable of the prodigal son by saying it's a parable Um, and then the next chapter of uh, Luke Jesus said to his disciples there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that the man was squandering his property and you don't know Jesus doesn't say that's a parable Later in the same chapter. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day and at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus. It so-. doesn't tell you that it was a parable. So how do you know that these stories are parables? Well, here are some features of these parable stories in Luke. They're formulaic and neat and self-contained. Um, they, 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 For instance, it's common that the debtors in the middle of these parables, there are three debtors who come back and um, uh, are told how much to to pay. In in England, we we tell stories about an Englishman, an Irishman, and a Scotsman. There are ways of telling stories. There are formulae for stories. Second thing about a parable is it leaves the listener put on the spot. You take a risk when you listen to a parable because at the end it kicks you. Third thing about parables is that they tend to be funny or ironic. And the fourth thing is that they're larger than life. All those three parables are larger than life. <laughs> now, Luke as a whole is not formulaic. It's not ironic. And it's not larger than life, except on the vast scale. I mean, it's telling you, it's giving this huge ma- meta-narrative and it's telling you about Jesus ri- rising from the dead. But but much of the way through, it's, it's kind of everyday. The parables then... Are fictions that are set in the context of a historical story. They are supportive of the historical story, and they are supported by it. The parables support the historical story because they give you pictures of what it's uh, illustrations of what it's about. But they are supported by it because if you hadn't got the historical story, the parables would be floating around, and you wouldn't know what the real historical truth was. You wouldn't again know what the gospel was. Now, what I suggest to you that all that um, helps one to see why Jonah. Uh, is a parable, and why that 's okay um, Jonah is also a story that puts the listener on the t- on the spot. Uh, Jonah is also funny uh, and or ironic. Jonah is also larger than life um, and and Jonah can, as it were, survive as a parabolic story if it 's the case that the basic Old Testament story, the story of the exodus and the conquest of the land and the division of the kingdoms and the exile, is basically, is, is basically a historical story. Uh, Jonah, of course, himself appears in that historical story, uh, so the, Jonas, the, jo- the book of Jonah is a kind of spin-off from a paragraph within the books of Kings. Um, it doesn't need to be historical for its story to, be, to work. If the basic Old Testament story wasn't historical, then the Jonah story wouldn't work in the same way as if the Gospels weren't historical, then the parables wouldn't work. Um, that's the, now, that, those are the bases upon which both it seems to me to be the case that Jonah is more likely to be a, a parable than a piece of history, and it's okay, it can work all right um, as a parable in the same way as Jesus' parables can work as parables. Um, anyone want to come back at me about any of that? If not, I'll pick up two or three others of the postings. Um, This is interesting. Um, I'm very uncomfortable with using language like right and wrong interpretations of Scripture. Why should we answer questions of what is a right interpretation and what is a wrong interpretation? Why why can't we use language of better and not-so-great interpretations? I feel using such black and white language can lead to some dangerous and unnecessary controversies between groups who disagree. My interpretation is right, your interpretation is wrong. Aren't basic disagreements and adherence to cut and dry arguments, my way is the right way, your way is the wrong way, prescriptions for church dissension, split-offs, even holy wars. In trying not to be too dramatic, uh, I want to be aware of the seeds that can cause huge strife and conflict among believers. I think that's that, that's that's a good point, point. Um, and um, uh, ties ties with um, with that Jonah one. Of, there are uh, there are nine interpretations of the Book of Jonah. That that, that, can, that can all be okay. We don't have to have one right interpretation. Maybe, I mean, there are there are some like it doesn't matter whether Jesus is the Son of God. It does matter whether Jesus died for us. There are some bits of. Um, interpretation that matter Um, and so usually Christians have distinguished between central things which were the kind of things that you would split a church over and more peripheral things that you wouldn't Um, now most of you are US citizens and therefore you believe in splitting churches Uh, and that's something God has blessed Uh, just as when churches split in Acts God blessed it Um, but uh, it's it's a good idea to think once, twice, three, five, eight, and nine times before concluding that this issue is such a big issue, such a central issue, um, that... Uh, we ought to split the church over. Um, here's a, another, well, a, a very long one, but it's... Uh, some, that's um, Yeah, I'm going to read it anyway. I feel like the old li- literal versus figurative debate... Should have been settled for me by now, but honestly, I think I still have questions. I've been involved in Christian communities that believe that Jonah was literally swallowed by a fish. I've been involved in Christian communities that believe Jonah was not a historical person, but is a fictitious mythical story meant to illustrate truth. Fact versus myth, literal versus metaphorical. Part of me doesn't care, honestly. God could certainly create a fish that could swallow a person. Why not? My experience with the God of the Bible who is miraculous and creative and omnipotent leads me to believe that God could certainly have done that. It literally could have happened. There's also the part of me, the ex-English teacher part of me, who knows and loves the value of metaphor, myth and story. That knows something doesn't have to be factual to be true. That could believe the story of Jonah is true in the way that poetry is true. That knows our modern concept of history can't be projected back to the time when the book of Jonah was written. I think that's a slightly different point, but it's worth bearing in mind. Um, I, don't think it's, I don't think that's very relevant, actually, to Jonah, but it is the case that the way in which you go about writing history in the ancient world is very different from the way that you go about writing history in the modern world. Um, and I assume that what God would have inspired in the Old Testament or the New Testament is a really great example of the kind of history writing they'd have done in that culture not an example of the kind of history writing that you'd have done 2,000 years later in a different culture. Uh, and, that would, and that would be quite happy, uh, history writing in the ancient world, to be run, running together more factual material and more fictional material. Believing the story of Jonah or Adam and Eve or the miracles of Jesus to be historically true certainly doesn't win you the respect of academics if that's what you're looking for. There is definitely a part of me that is uncomfortable fighting for a literal reading of the Bible. At the same time, it seems like many people who wave the It's Myth, Story, Fiction, Poetry flag do so as a move to escape the notion of biblical authority. That's true, but it doesn't work, actually. Because, you know, for the Hans Fry kind of reasons. It can be a way to escape the transformation that follows an encounter with the miraculous wild god of the impossible. That's good, isn't it? Saying it's fictional can be a way of escaping the transformation that follows an encounter with a miraculous wild God of the impossible. I wonder if God seems safer and more palatable if the stories in the Bible are mythical. So I resist fully embracing that approach to biblical interpretation. When I've been surrounded by Christian communities that believe that the miracles of Jesus literally happened, I've seen miracles happen. When I've been in a Christian community that believes the miracles of Jesus were metaphorical, like the loaves and fishes are actually a story about the power of unity and community, or illustrates God's care for us, in those communities miracles don't happen. I don't see the God who reveals his love in supernatural and transformative ways. So that's a bit of a tangent. But it's a good tangent, my comment. But I really have seen some of the practical implications of where we fall on the literal figurative debate and the questions about how we interpret narrative. I'm not sure whether this is the same person or not. I'm curious if sometimes we overinterpret scripture. Do we oftentimes try to find meaning in things in general that aren't necessarily aimed at conveying that particular meaning? That's what um, Luther and Calvin were doing. Another question is, how do we hear the tone of the voice of the author? That's good, and obviously in a, obviously, you can't, because you can't hear the tone of the voice, but that shows how important it is to listen really, to, to read really carefully, to do what is referred to technically sometimes as close reading, to read very carefully. Um, I, I often I'm encouraging you guys not to worry about not knowing Greek and Hebrew um, don't be put off by this but uh, I think the reason a very big reason why I'm glad I do is that it makes me read it makes me, makes me read the story much more carefully if I'm reading it in Greek or Hebrew so if you do you get the chance to do that and you can use that then, then it just pays off in reading the story closely, carefully. <coughs> Sometimes it's difficult for me to feel confident that I'm at reading the text with the same emotion or intensity as the person who wrote it. Yeah. Um, and so, you're in the same position again as you are in the counselling room. Are you listening attentively? Narrative is about reading the story, and those stories can oftentimes be even more profound when the character of the storyteller is portrayed. How are we to get the most out of interpreting narrative stories with very little interpretation on the storyteller at times? Well, all you can do is put yourself in, is become the storyteller. Um, Get into the the storyteller. Empathise with the storyteller, even if you don't know the storyteller's uh, name or date. Um, For next week, uh, you're going to do something which is... uh, I was going to say it's like the covenant one, but it's not really. Um, You're going to be looking at the material on Sabbath in Scripture. So look up the occurrences of uh, of Sabbath. Um, There aren't as many as you might have thought. Uh, And ask, what does the Sabbath mean in the different contexts in which it's mentioned? What is its purpose? What is its function? Each each passage passage it comes. And then, in light of that... What might be the significance of Sabbath in your context? Supposing you find ten significances of Sabbath in Scripture. Maybe one of them is the one that's most significant for us. But maybe uh, you need rather to do a jump to, well, if that's what Sabbath meant in that context, in that context, in that context, uh, let me think about our context and ask what Sabbath might mean uh, in our context. Um, And we will look at that, amongst other things, next Monday. Okay? Goodbye.